Countrywide on ABC Radio. Support businesses are going to go to the wall just like dairy farmers will. We've seen the whole agricultural community come out. Once people leave communities, they don't. They generally don't return. Countrywide. Don't worry about me. Go and speak to your farmers. We're already losing businesses. Get out there and speak to your farmers and your farmers Countrywide, the politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. Hi and welcome to Countrywide. I'm Jessica Schremmer, bringing you the program from Melbourne on Virunjari country. Coming up, a shortage of vets is troubling farmers and people in the bush, and some say the training system is to blame. There's more and more reliance on FE income generated from students, and even that's not really covering the true cost of education. We're seeing a lack of transition from students going into veterinary practice and then people leaving veterinary practice quickly as well. Given the reliance that the Australian agricultural industries have on the veterinary profession in a disease surveillance capacity, but also in an animal health setting, we're going to see some big problems coming up on the horizon very quickly. And how a trend in micro-farming which basically means farming on smaller plots of land with less produce, could help regrow Australia's flower industry. The fact that farmers are now diversifying and growing flowers again and micro-growers, micro the demand is there because the Australian public is asking their florists and their fruit and veg shops for Australian-grown flowers. That story in just a tick, but first up, Here's something to think about when you choose your next bottle of milk in the supermarket. The Australian Competition and Consumer Commission has outlined concerns about the Coles bid to buy two milk processing plants from Canadian dairy processor Saputo in New South Wales and Victoria. The competition watchdog is worried the move would see Saputo exit the fresh milk market in New South Wales and that would increase the market power for the supermarket giant. McKeo, the ACCC deputy chair, told Josh Becker it could have a flow-on effect for dairy farmers. It's important to understand that these two processing facilities are very modern, high capacity and very efficient. So they are very important in terms of the um, total processing capacity available, particularly in New South Wales. When it comes to the issues we're concerned about, the concern we have is that the transaction, which would be Saputo selling the processing plant, particularly in New South Wales, to Coles, and then using that plant, having Coles in charge of it, and Saputo using that plant to toll process its milk. The concern is that that may signal a move by Saputo to move out of the fresh milk market in New South Wales over time. And that would result in a significant, or we were concerned that that may result in a significant reduction in competition for um, fresh milk in New South Wales. It's a uh, first for uh, a supermarket to be involved in processing to this extent and to have that degree of uh, capacity. And that really can result in significant changes in the market. So we do want to make sure We've got a very clear understanding of the implications of that and the industry has a chance to comment on that. What evidence do you have and what makes you think that this proposal will see Saputo leave New South Wales? Well, certainly there's been uh, indications from Saputo in a number of its publications that it's reconsidering its role in the market more generally in Australia. And if this signals a move that, in the short term may see 
Saputo wind down or remove itself from the fresh milk market, that would be a substantial change in the market in New South Wales in particular, and, and that would raise some concerns, particularly amongst dairy farmers. Which areas of New South Wales would be most affected by this potential acquisition? Mainly the central area of New South Wales and uh, up to parts of the North Coast because it also potentially has implications for processors who currently um, toll process for coals in that it could, for example, see coals consolidate all its processing back to the Sydney plant that it's acquiring and that would then have implications for some of the other processes that currently toll process for coals, particularly for their home brand milk products. You also write in your report that you're concerned about the increased information that Coles would have and and that would therefore increase their market power. Can you explain a little bit more about your thinking there? At the current stage, Coles negotiates with, for example, Saputo, but other processors to process milk for it and package it up and ship it in um, the Coles branded products. When Coles moves to have complete control over major processing plants, as this transaction would enable, it means that Coles is in a very strong position in terms of bargaining power with processors, but also has a very strong base of information in which to go into those negotiations with other processors and that changes the dynamics of that negotiation and may disadvantage um, those other processes. So we've got to look at that quite carefully as well. If farmers or people in the industry want to offer their thoughts on this uh, proposed acquisition of, of these processing facilities, how can they take part? They can access uh, the ACCC website, accc.gov.au, and they will find uh, links from there to make submissions or they can use snail mail if they need to. Uh, we're open for submissions until the 3rd of August, so a relatively short period of time, but we've all already had some consideration of this. So really, we're just looking for any further information that might be available before we make a decision. Mick Keo, Deputy Chair of the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, speaking there to Josh Becker. And you can make submissions to the ACCC inquiry on that deal up until the 3rd of August. While it can be tricky to get an appointment for your pet with a vet in a city, spare a moment for anyone in need of a vet in the country. A new report has found shortages of vets in regional areas can be directly linked to a crisis within veterinary education. Vets have been struggling to meet the growing needs of farmers according to the review commissioned by Veterinary Schools of Australia and New Zealand and the challenges have only grown since the COVID-19 outbreak. Fiona Broom has this story. Veterinary education is facing crisis, according to the body representing eight veterinary schools in Australia and New Zealand. Without an abrupt change of course, VSANZ says the region will be facing shortages as vets and students struggle with poor mental health and burnout. 
A review of veterinary science education found the industry is critical for animal, human, and environmental health. An integrated concept known as One Health and for food safety. Here's Australian Veterinary Association board member Professor James Gilkerson. The Australian veterinary profession is approaching a, an education crisis. The current levels of funding to veterinary education are inadequate. There's more and more reliance on FE income generated from students, and even that's not really covering the true cost of education. We're seeing a lack of transition from students going into veterinary practice, and then people leaving veterinary practice quickly as well. Given the reliance that the Australian agricultural industries have on the veterinary profession in a disease surveillance capacity, but also in an animal health setting, we're going to see some big problems coming up on the horizon very quickly. So, what are those challenges that are facing the field of veterinary medicine? The review covers biosecurity, food production, animal welfare, one health. That's a really broad range of really complex <laughs> issues to cover. From the food production, animal health setting. So, if you think about production animals. Australian agriculture is a, a you know a, a massive export earner for the country, and all of that's predicated on the the health and welfare status of our animal, and a lot of that's down to really good veterinary programs over the years. So we're able to access markets that other countries can't access because we've been able to successfully keep a lot of um, really significant diseases out of the country. And we've been able to eradicate some of the really significant diseases that we had because of the veterinary departments and the veterinary workforce and the, and the work they've done in the uh, you know the latter part of the 20th century. Without an adequate number of veterinarians that are able to financially survive in rural Australia, um, that's going to be put at threat. The review panel said the submissions they received held really varying views with little consensus on how to address these challenges that you've mentioned. Uh, but they said that they tried to reach a position on the key issues. Why is this all so contentious? Are there divisions within the profession that are driving this lack of consensus on some solutions? Part of the difficulty is that you talk about you know university education as if it's a homogenous thing that's the same in every university. All universities have their own different uh, internal structures and therefore their own different sort of internal economic um, drivers and, and barriers. And so it's really difficult to come up with a one-size-fits-all that will help the veterinary schools across the country. The one thing that will help veterinary schools across the country is increased amount of funding towards veterinary education. At the moment, I think the model just sort of looks at a, giving an, an inadequate amount of money that doesn't come anywhere close to covering the clinical cost of, of training, whereas if you think about other professions, like the medical profession, there's a whole range of state-based infrastructure in terms of hospitals and all of those sorts of things that are provided by the state governments. Um, there's federal funding for training of rural and regional doctors and all those sorts of things that are just not available to the veterinary profession. Why do you think governments aren't funding um, veterinary education in the same way that they're funding human health education? That's a really good question. Uh, I think that's something that we should be asking government, and I think that's one of the outcomes from this report that's highlighting that this is a question that we need to have. This is a discussion that needs to be, be commenced. And I think we've probably been too successful in doing our jobs as veterinarians and not telling people what we've been doing. So I, I think this is a really good first step to try and address that. That's James Gilkerson, a director of the Australian Veterinary Association and professor of veterinary microbiology at Melbourne University, speaking to Fiona Broom. You're listening to Countrywide across Australia and around the world on ABC Radio. 
Global grain prices have made their biggest jump within a day since Russia invaded Ukraine 17 months ago, causing food security fears for the world's poorest populations. That's potentially good news though for Australian farmers, but bad news for countries struggling to feed their people. Russia bombed two ports this week and declared that ships sailing from Ukraine's port would be seen as potentially carrying military cargo. Angus Worley spoke with Andrew Whitelaw, director at Episode3.net, about the implications for Australian grain farmers and global food security. What was really interesting about it from a price reaction point of view is that we basically had an announcement from Russia saying we are not going to renew that deal and the market didn't react. And so we're talking about, you know, a huge proportion of global barley, wheat and even canola and corn basically getting struck off the market. And what happened is that the market just didn't react. So why not? Well, it was an interesting one because you know, logically, you'd think taking away that kind of supply from the marketplace would have a reaction where the market would rise. And I think part of it was that every time that agreement was up for renewal, Russia said, we're not going to extend it and eventually did extend it. But this time, Andrew, it's different and Russia hasn't come to the table. Yeah, so they haven't, they haven't come to the table. And uh, I think they basically shown that no deal means no deal. And they have basically attacked uh, two grain ports, including Odessa in Ukraine, and destroyed quite a lot of infrastructure that's used to load vessels. Uh, but also about 60,000 tonnes of grain has been destroyed, apparently. And they've also flagged that vessels transiting to these grain ports could be construed as carrying military equipment, and so they're at risk. So that's basically flagging to ship owners, we don't want to take any risks uh, going into those grain ports in Ukraine. And so the market has reacted the way I would have expected it to have acted, reacted on Monday. And we've seen wheat futures rising by about 33 Aussie dollars a tonne. And that's probably the biggest rise really since the start of the invasion when, when the market got really uh, tense and really concerned about supplies. So we've seen that market rallying really strongly. And look, I expected that to have occurred early part of this week. So I was quite surprised that we had a bit of a muted reaction to that uh, lack of supply. Uh, but now we're really seeing it starting to fire up, which is an opportunity to, for, for farmers to use. And Andrew, can you just explain why markets have reacted so, so starkly? Um, I mean, I guess I'm asking how significant exports out of the Black Sea are in a global grain market context. If we look at it from a global context, uh, if we think about your grain exports out of the Black Sea. These guys are, they are the most important when it comes to exports of grain. So if we, we pick a couple of commodities that we, we share with them, Russia over the last five years has averaged 16% of the global trade of barley, Ukraine 15%. On canola, about 16% of uh, global trade of canola has come from Ukraine. And on wheat, 19% of the global trade in wheat comes from Russia and 9% from Ukraine. So we're talking on some of those commodities, you know, a f around about a third of the global trade. So the available trade in grain for those countries that are at deficit, one third. So we're talking huge volumes. That is a big concern for, you know, those developing nations that rely on, on grains for their daily diet. Uh, but it is, you know, of a benefit to, to Australian farmers when the fact of the matter is that if you remove supply from the marketplace, 
then that only has one effect and that is increasing pricing. That's the logic, that's basic supply and demand economics. What have we heard from Russia? Why is it that in this case they've uh, literally blown up the deal? Well, I think one of the one of the things that they were calling for is they wanted a whole bunch of sanctions removed. So at the moment, one of the major commodities that they export is ammonia. So they want access to that to allow them to continue to export ammonia through Ukraine. Uh, but they also, whilst fertilizer and grains aren't sanctioned products, they are having troubles because of the fact that they don't have access to the SWIFT banking system. So making international payments is, is difficult for Russia. So they've asked to be brought back into the SWIFT banking system. And so I think Russia knows that they're in a good, strong negotiating position to say, well, if we don't get what we want, we will starve in North Africa and the Middle East. And Andrew, in terms of Ukraine, what alternative export channels does it have? Look, I think that's one of the, the important things to that the market didn't react heavily on Monday as well, is that we've had a year where whilst grain exports for overseas uh, have been good, considering that the uncertainty they've been under, it's been nowhere near where they normally do. So what they've been able to do is export into Europe, overland through the western parts of Ukraine, over by rail and by truck. That's caused its own problems because those Eastern European countries are getting flooded with cheap Ukrainian grain. So they've actually asked for continual bans on Ukrainian grain. Uh, but they've also been doing it through barges and, and whatnot. So grain exports via alternate methods have been increasing. So the grain is still going to leave the country, but it does leave a huge amount of uncertainty. It means that in the short term, there's going to be less grain available to the world. But in the longer term, there will be building stockpiles. Because typically, you know, in Australia, we try and get our grain out in the first six months of the year after harvest in order to get it to our destination customers before the Black Sea grain becomes available. There's going to be less of that available, and so those stockpiles will build. So it could be a problem in you know, six months' time, a year time, and that grain does have the capacity to come to market. But again, it's just another level of uncertainty in the market because we're really dealing with a market that is now driven by the views and the desires of one man, not the normal, you know, the normal market sort of uh, environment that we typically have. Andrew Whitelaw directed at episodes3.net, speaking with Angus Verley. And if you like to read more on that story, you can head online to abc.net.au slash rural. This week is National Farm Safety Week, and agriculture remains one of Australia's most dangerous industries to work in. Just last year, 55 farmers lost their lives on farm. And increasingly, technology is playing a greater role in not just preventing accidents, but also causing them. And one such example is drones. Fiona Lake has been taking aerial ag photos since the 1980s from a helicopter. But in 2016, she bought her own first drone. Back then, she taught herself how to handle the drone, as there were limited options for drone help. And now she provides drone training all across Australia. She told Lucy Cooper, safety issues with drones continue to rise as demand grows. It's great now, spray drones are finally getting some traction. There's huge opportunities for people, especially with spot spraying weeds, because weeds cost us $8 billion approximately every year, and it's getting more expensive. The other thing is drone mustering. I can't see them replacing helicopters any time soon, and there's also ear tags and virtual fencing and other things that are probably better served, but 
Drones are very handy for small areas and tricky spots, but thermal drones is great potential for them. And I think they'll be the next thing to boom because the detail is increasing and the price is dropping and they're fantastic for finding feral animals, for example. Um, People have been using them to find pigs. But we need more people providing services in the bush who grew up in the bush or who have lived and worked in the bush. We don't want more people who just see the agriculture and farming as a potential cash cow to be milked and they're providing very poor services because they they just can't. If they don't know the problems and don't understand the culture and the people and costs and, and all of that, it's impossible to do a really good job. So we need more people in the bush to set up service businesses. In spirit of it being Farm Safety Week, I also wanted to ask you about your thoughts on drone safety and where we're headed in terms of awareness of the right things to do as the uptake for drones does increase so much more? The basic thing I say, because CASA's um, rules are written in a very confusing way, ideally they'd be simplified onto an A4 page, but my fundamentals are you never ever fly a drone over anyone's head, you don't fly it nearly over their head, and you don't fly near any airborne aircraft that has people in it. They're the three main things. And if you always do those and you're sure that that's what you're doing, you won't have a problem. You'll you'll actually meet all the rural requirements fundamentally if you do those, those three things. But the problem is there is a bit of a culture flying out of line of sight. And if you fly out of line of sight and you lose the image that's on your screen, you don't know what's coming. You, can't, you don't know whether there's anything underneath the drone if you have to land it in a hurry. And it's kind of become rife. And I I describe it as the risk of something happening is really low, as in the probability. But if there was a disaster, it would be a really bad disaster. Particularly, you know, these gyrocopters and ultralights, for example, that cut around the countryside and they're popping over the scrub just above tree height, right where a drone typically flies. It depends on the size of the drone, but even small drones, you probably wouldn't want to hit one of those things. So it's a bit like driving without your seatbelt. You know, you could do it for years and not have a problem, but then one day, yeah, it could be catastrophic. And this year, especially on Instagram with Reels and on TikTok, what's really emerged as a big trend is for agfluencers, as I like to call them, to use drones to dip under and in between uh, headers and harvesters, you know, during the big season to capture and show the rest of the world what it's like on the farm at, at the best time of year, especially um, whether it's mustering or if you've got some broad acre cropping. Now, they use drones for that kind of image and often edit it and use slow-mo. Is that all allowed, that weaving in and out of your drone beneath, below and around moving machinery? Well, there's a few things to consider. I mean, first, firstly in Australia, the use of racing drone because – Mostly they're called FPV drones, first-person view, and mostly people wear goggles. Well, in Australia, it's different in other countries. There are a few um, differences between here in the US, for example, and here in New Zealand. But you're not actually allowed to just fly a drone wearing goggles. We do need better laws. You should be able to have a spotter standing beside you who can look around. Situational awareness, you need to be able to see all around everything. And if you've got goggles on, you're only seeing what the drone is seeing. If you're flying around, you're on your own place, around your own header, well, to be honest, 
if you wreck your own machinery, that's kind of your problem. It's not like you're going to injure a person if you fly your drone into the front of the header or whatever. It might be an unwise thing to do. I guess drones now are very much more foolproof than they were just five years ago. So that's a bit of a two-edged sword. So you need to fly your drone as if it can fall out of the sky at any time and, and probably don't ever fly it over your solar power system. Fiona Lake, drone photographer, speaking there with Lucy Cooper. If you like flowers and buying locally grown produce, then you will be interested in this emerging trend. 20 years ago, Australia's cut flower industry was in full bloom, but cheap imports outpriced locally grown flowers and changed the industry. Now, there is hope the new trend of microfarming could help it recover once again. Megan Hughes has this story. On Anna Nicholson's mixed beef and crop farm, a small plot of land is blooming bright. Her garden beds stand out from the bush landscape she farms on, around 60 kilometres outside of Clermont, a town in central Queensland known for its cattle and coal. So we've got ranunculus, we've got anemones, love in a mist, we've got stocks, snapdragons, uh, everlasting daisies, a range of other ones as well. Down the end I've got status, larkspur. There's a couple of delphiniums that I've managed to propagate. They, um, they grow in alpine climbing up in the mountains, so yeah, it's a bit of a trial and error with them. Ms Nicholson has jumped on the micro-farming flower trend, planting a garden of flowers not just for her personal enjoyment, but to sell. We've got about 87 or so dahlias, so yeah, I source them from all over Victoria, New South Wales, South Australia. So yeah, we started with them and they've just been sensational, the interest from the local communities. We've had so much support. I um recently did a big Anzac Day reef for the local school and they laid it at the Anzac service. So yeah, that was really successful. So the cut flowers, are you selling them to local florists or are you um, making the bouquets and the wreaths yourself? Yeah, I have been making the bouquets myself, mainly because I haven't had enough flowers to fulfill, say, you know, a wholesale order. Hopefully by the end of this year, I'm going to expand my dahlias and yeah I'll be able to provide some to the florists there has been interest I just yeah haven't had enough and then also hopefully I'll be able to take them to the markets and maybe sell them at the markets. Micro farming is about creating small economies growing local to sell local. Flower Industry Australia CEO Anna Jaber is hoping small operations like Miss Nicholson's could help restore the domestic industry back to its former glory. Over the past 20 years, we actually saw a rise in imports due to market conditions becoming easier to import and they were cheap flowers from countries who didn't have very good labour conditions. So they were imported in huge amounts and they decimated the local industry quite a bit. So the fact that farmers are now diversifying and growing flowers again and micro micro growers, the demand is there because the Australian public is asking um, their florists and their fruit and veg shops for Australian grown flowers. So it is making a dent, it's making a steady dent and we're seeing a steady increase 
in growth in the industry. I think over the past year, it was about a 6% increase on last year, which we love to see. According to Ms Jaber, the demand for locally grown blooms was born out of the COVID-19 pandemic when flower imports drastically reduced, showing the fragility of the trade. Emily Spring also has a micro-farming operation near Clermont. She's a few years ahead of Ms Nicholson, having started in 2020. Her initial plan was to grow vegetables, but struggled with the climate after moving from New South Wales. Obviously, I'm expanding all the time. Um, I'm probably at my maximum at the moment, but I started out quite small and there was a lot of, yeah, a lot of people wanting flowers. I wasn't kind of expecting, expecting it to take off like it did. I grow enough when it's like the peak of the season to supply like three florists and plus like sell locally, like retail and do like events and stuff like that. Winter and spring are probably my main growing time. And I grow like um, stock and snapdragons and all your fillers like baby's breath and Queen Anne's lace and ranunculus, obviously. Flower Industry Australia has been advocating for a country of origin labelling scheme for flowers so consumers can tell where their blooms are from before buying. Australian growers can buy green and gold bands to show their flowers are grown domestically. That report from Megan Hughes. That's it for Countrywide today. I'm Jessica Schremer. It's been great to have your company. And if you'd like to check out some of the stories you've heard, you can head to our website at abc.net.au slash rural or you can check out our ABC Rural Facebook page. Thanks for listening. Catch you later.